Farm boy turned corrupt cop. Head of the strong arm squad. Devoted husband. Father to be. Criminal mastermind or framed. In today's episode, we will meet Lieutenant Charles Becker, the man who allegedly orchestrated Herman Rosenthal's murder, and draw our own conclusions about his involvement. I want to welcome everybody back to our podcast and thank you everybody for being patient with us as we do more research and prep and everything. And a huge shout out to people that have followed and reached out uh, to the podcast socials to really encourage us. Thank to come you back so and keep doing much. This. We love you. We love you. A special shout out to whoever's facilitated our research and Thank the you, Casablanca. Hotel. We are so happy to be back. And I think today's episode is one that we've both been looking forward to recording for a while. And hopefully we'll yes. do it justice. No, no pun intended whatsoever, <laughs> but we're keeping that. So without further ado, Episode three. Uh, let's get into it. Welcome uh, to Kings of New York, Episode 3, Lieutenant Charles Becker. We'll come up with a witty title later. Uh, so he was, and, and we keep coming back to this, so he was many things and often not things to be proud of. There's no illusion that he was innocent when it came to collecting graft, to cavorting with no criminals, to falsifying evidence, trumping up charges, or even stabbing fellow officers in the back. But given all of that, we still maintain that in the particular case of the Rosenthal murder, he was framed and he was executed for a crime that he did not commit. So we do mm -hmm. maintain his innocence. And let's just talk about him. Let's find out what kind of person he was and why him, right? And and we'll get into that at the end of the episode. We'll we'll chat about it a little more. But um, he started off from fairly plain roots. He was born to a German family of farmers in Calicoon Center, Sullivan County, New York. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. He was born on July 26th, 1870. And that's according to his uh, death record. He would be executed by electric chair four days after his 45th birthday on July 30th, 1915 at Sing Sing Prison. He came from a fairly large family. He was a first-generation American raised with fellow siblings on the family farm. According to his mother's obituary from December 19th, 1913, he was the youngest of 10 children, six of whom survived into adulthood. As an aside, it's kind of comforting that his mother passed away before he did. She never found out anything that happened with the Rosenthal case. But I digress. His father um, passed away in 1877. So I actually found a record from um, a census record from 1880. Charles is listed as a six-year-old with Mary, his mother, um, raising him with the help of his older siblings, Catherine and Jackson. At a fairly young age, Charles realized that he didn't want to be a farmer. He had ambitions. He wanted more than just a simple farm life. And he decided to try his luck in the big city, as you know, yep. everyone did at that point. He he wanted to make a name for himself. And obviously he was that wasn't gonna happen on a farm. And I'm gonna guess that with his father gone, 
there was also not a lot of fatherly example of how to run the farm. By 1890, Charles was already living in New York and had arranged a job for himself at a local beer hall in the Bowery. We're getting this a bunch of this information from an awesome book uh, recommended to us actually by one of our sources. And it's a book called The Life and Bad Times of Charlie Becker from 1961 by Jonathan Ross. The book outlines pretty specifically that ba uh, Becker worked as a bouncer for Monk Eastman, who was a, a very notorious Eastside gangster who ran the Bowery with an iron fist. In the 1890s, Eastman was the crime boss of the Lower East Side. He was top brass. He controlled everything. So if you fell into his good graces, you were set. Your future was bright. You're good to go. You're protected. You had a lot of opportunity. So among Eastman's establishments, there were predominantly Jewish venues, uh, Hungarian beer halls, social clubs, place at Broom and Norfolk. I don't know if you've heard of this place, Annie, um, hmm. called New Irving Hall. <laughs> I wonder come up what or twice, happened right? there. <laughs> he was linked to Eastman as a bouncer. It's really cool to see that little detail because it really could mean that this is that link uh, between Becker and Eastman and all of these people that were involved in the Rosenthal murder. It links them to particular events mm -hmm. in 1899 and establishes roots of this, like these friendships, or maybe like just acquaintances that they're aware of each other's existence. And these would continue for mm -hmm. many years. And some of them he would claim were his friends since childhood. According to Ross's book and multiple other sources, Becker was pointed to the police force so he started off in these beer halls bouncer he was a big guy and he was handpicked by mr tim sullivan himself or once again the king of the bowery or good old tammany politician somehow becker was favored by tim sullivan if you remember from our previous episode tim sullivan he was a very prominent politician and any young fellas that showed promise were always on his radar so we already know that Herman Rosenthal was one of those protégés, Arnold Rothstein. He supported New Irving Hall and everything that that place stood for. It wasn't just a performance venue. There were uh, union meetings and strikes, all of these like counter-government, counter-establishment events that Tim Sullivan would personally fund his portrait hung behind the bar just like at so many gambling dens and saloons in the neighborhood so like it was no secret that this this person supported all of these things in our previous episode when we talked about him he was there during the newsboy mm -hmm. strike of 1899 which is what brought us yeah. together originally <laughs> tim sullivan paid to rent out the hall and over 3,000 people showed up to attend the rally. 3,000 striking newsboys. They shut down the whole city. There's a wonderful musical about it. What was what was uh, that uh, musical called again? Uh, something News, about newsboys. Newsies. Newsies. <laughs> something like that. Um, well, and the thing is, that it doesn't come up at all in, um, it comes up a little bit, I guess, in the move in the 92 movie, but not in the stage production, because, you know, cut yeah. the number of people you have on stage. Um, but he, he was a politician. He was there very prominently. Sullivan was there. I have very little doubt that Becker would have been there, too, considering he was already he was already as, on, working as bouncer on the police force. Yeah. That's right. Chummy with 
Tim Sullivan. And then before any questions come up as to, you know, why would a politician want to associate himself with a bunch of striking newsboys, that's your future voters. You make good with the kids. And then when they're old enough to vote, who are they going to remember? The guy that funded Mm -hmm. their endeavors, right? I have little doubt that Becker met Rosenthal, possibly met Jack Sullivan and Bridgie Weber and the rest of the names that we're going to, that are going to keep coming up throughout the story when they were young, maybe during the strike, maybe via Tim Sullivan, some other way, but that's kind of that linking person between all of them. We do have the official story that Becker met Rosenthal at the Elks Club at the 1912 New Year's dinner, hold arm around the shoulders and kiss and I'll do whatever kiss. you want. The infamous kiss. The kiss of death. I really do think that Rosenthal's friendship with people like Jack Sullivan and Senator Big Big Tim Sullivan, all of these already existed. I don't believe that Becker and Rosenthal didn't know one another before 1912. It's it's impossible. There's no way not cross paths before. Yeah, absolutely. The other reason why Tim steps in and helps this young gentleman to get him on the police force at the time, we have this funny thing called police corruption. And to get onto the force, you had to pay. You couldn't, I mean, you had to pass a series of exams and blah, blah, blah. Or you paid $300 to have those exams pass for you. So that's the equivalent of $10,000 today. Over $10,000. From different sources, we get in that Becker either like paid a partial fee or that he even got in for free on Tim Sullivan's word and recommendation. Yeah. Like, that's a big deal. So that's kind of establishing him as in now his early for years. Now his married life. Becker had been married twice before he had met his true love, Miss Helen Lynch, and he married her in 1905. But his first marriage was in 1895, and he married Marianne Mahoney. And this marriage was short because she had a respiratory illness. She had developed this the night before their wedding, and she would pass away eight months later. So during the trials that ran from 1912 to 1915, uh, there were attempts to paint Becker as a murderer, like having murdered his... Beyond killing Rosenthal. (laughs) Having murdered his... First wife. From the resources that we have about their marriage, it's they're very few, but we believe that he did not murder his first wife. We believe that it was a genuine love match, that he really did care for Marianne or Mary. It's around this time that he has joined the police force. And it looks like he's, like, actually trying to clean up his act. He's trying to be a public servant. He's trying to do a good job, establish a good life for himself and for his wife so that he could possibly have, so that his wife could possibly recover from this illness. It seemed that Becker was very, very focused on his career up until... 1898, when he meets a Canadian gal named Letitia Stenson. In December 1899, 
Um, this is while he's on, while he has been on the police force. They had a son named Howard. Unfortunately, they would divorce about six years later, and Letitia would, I think, about a year later, marry his brother Paul, and they would get married. They would run off. They went to Reno, so they took the go west directive, and they went west and they got married in the reno gazette journal it is said that they were married in august august 17th in 1909 and howard his son uh, would grow up to be a sociologist um and he when questioned about his father's story he would um not comment on it and didn't really want much to do with knowing about it or or answering to any questions that any media would have what led to his divorce we know that howard did not comment on rosenthal into his adulthood perhaps his work in sociology was an influence was a way for him to understand what his father had done we don't know this is all speculation but we do know that howard would not have any children after this he did not he was basically the end of the line we have some speculations about that as well but we do want to be respectful about that because we just don't know whatever that case may be becker would find true love again in 1905 he would meet helen lynch she was a special needs teacher um, at a school that was close to Becker's Beat. We don't know exactly how they met. They could have met while he was on patrol. Maybe she caught his eye or he caught hers. But as far as we can tell, it was a very intense love connection. He worshipped Helen. She was smitten with him as well. Um, she was described as shy, petite, reserved, and she was an older woman. So her family was very relieved that she had found a husband. He would call her his queen, and she would call him her Charlie lover. He would bring her to fancy dinners, police events. He would bring her out of her shell, and um, most of their evenings would be spent quietly at home. He would stay up late into the hours, helping her grade all of her homework assignments and help her to develop her lessons. So it was very sweet and loving relationship that they had really was which is such a juxtaposition to his career and like this is this makes me question him so much of like where is this kind loving gentle you know giant uh when we get into uh his police work like his his career so i believe it was uh, mike dash that describes becker's early years in the police force in his 2007 blog title satan circus murder vice police corruption and new york's trial of the century one of the few books that he doesn't come to a specific conclusion about guilt or innocence which i i really do appreciate just i think there's at the time of of writing this book there just wasn't a, as many resources <laughs> as we have now so in his book, Mike Dash describes Becker as the fact that he was a German in a predominantly Irish precinct. There was a lot of tension between these different backgrounds. He wasn't very liked by his fellow officers when he first started out. 
I'm sure having Tim Sullivan as your bestie who got you the job also probably didn't help with I mean, being well, alive. Well, during who this knows? time as well, the Irish were very looked down upon as well. Um. Well, that's it, right? And so it was like this hierarchy of lower classes and lower caste, even if you will, that the Germans were below the Irish and the Irish were already pretty low on mm -hmm. that rung, on that list, right? And then we would see, you know, different waves of immigration with Jewish contingent coming in and that would, be, would become kind of the lower case. And then the Italian immigrants came in and those would come in as the lower case. But at the time of, of Becker um, starting out in the police force, he was kind of the low rung and he would be subject yeah. to bullying and abuse um, just for being German. Despite this, Becker really persisted and he would grow really quickly to his role of influence within the force. He would garner support from within as well as impress civilians of influence, such as other politicians and more people in his life that would ensure that he did well for himself. By the time he faced his first major police drama was in 1894, so he's already been on the force for a few years. At this point, he's already made enough of a name for himself that he has credibility, and so much so that he can testify against his superiors during this thing called the Lexo Committee hearings, which were this this hearing to investigate allegations of police corruption in New York. Somehow, word got out that in order to be on the force, he had to kind of blur the lines of legality and, and so on. <laughs> Gasp. So without going on too long of a tangent about this hearings, here are kind of like bullet points to know about because it, it, this does come in as an important thing later. So first things first, advancing in the ranks was largely bought. So just like you would have to pay 300 bucks to pass your entry exams, otherwise there's just no way that you could even get a beat or the lowest position. Uh, a captain's position allegedly cost or was quoted as uh, $15,000. In 1894, that's over half a million dollars in, in money today. So that's massive. You couldn't get a position otherwise, allegedly. The funds were raised, were often raised, by collecting protection money from gambling dens, parlors of ill repute, and prostitution. Specifically, police would target independent streetwalkers. And there was this really exploitative bail system where the arresting police officer and the night court judge would basically split the bail money between themselves and whoever the bail bondsman would be. And then occasionally even the person being arrested would get like a little bit of a cutback as, as long as everybody was getting some money. It was an incredibly convoluted but profitable system. And it was being even split with politicians in Tammany Hall because Tammany Hall controlled everything. The next point to consider is that the star witness of the Lexo Committee hearings was Captain Max Schmidtberger. He was a captain of the Tenderloin District. It was considered one of the, the viciest of vice dens. Eventually, Schmidtberger would actually become Becker's superior. This does play into things soon. But something to consider is Schmidtberger basically blew the whistle. Yes, there's corruption in the force. I will tell all. Becker was the witness against Schmidtberger. He would show up with a group of his own fellow officers. He he would do this thing that he would show up with a with a gang of his buddies to like show strength in numbers and to intimidate. And, and we will see this happen quite a bit anytime that Becker has to defend himself. 
or defend his position, he'll show up with a posse to support him. And the last thing to know is that amongst the Lexo Committee members was John W. Goff, who would be the judge at Becker's trial for Rosenthal's murder. We'll get to the trial at a later episode, but Goff hated Becker, and it was so obvious he did not bother hiding it. I would have to wonder if it started here during the Lexo Committee hearings, where Becker's obviously, you know, trying to prove that there's absolutely no police corruption. Everybody's clean as a whistle. Speaking and Goff sees right through that. The prostitution money that they would get for bails, Becker seemed to have a very strong inclination for wanting to arrest prostitutes or people that he would deem as streetwalkers. In one incident, September 16th, 1896, 2 a.m., while he was on the beat, he witnessed a woman who was approaching a man and another woman at the corner of 31st and Broadway. In Mike Dash's book, he kind of describes this scenario as Becker almost stalking this situation that's going on and then like almost leaping to it in a very predatory sort of way where Becker arrests her immediately for soliciting and she is a recognized woman of the streets. Her name is Dora Clark and she was very well known at the West 30th police station as a prostitute. She had been arrested daily and she would claim that she was being targeted by plainclothes men. One of the men that she was approaching was novelist Stephen Crane. He is known for writing the Red Badge of Courage. Before the Red Badge of Courage, he had written a, a book called Maggie, A Girl of the Streets, which was about a young girl who grew up to, in her life, have circumstances happen to her that would cause her to be a prostitute. So he was collecting information for new stories that he was working on, focusing on the unfortunate lives of sex workers. And Miss Clark would reference him as one of the witnesses because she would say that she was falsely arrested. Stephen Crane showed up at Jefferson Market Court to defend Miss Clark. I can't remember the exact quote, but I believe he said something of the lines of, she was perfectly pleasant to me and did not endorse any acts of this nature. So his credibility as the writer of The Red Badge of Courage did help to dismiss her case. And then Crane would demand that Becker be reprimanded for arresting her. That would put a target on his back because you did not mess with Becker like that. Even though the line of questioning was dismissed, the accusations made their way into newspapers. It would ruin Crane's name and credibility. In October, which was about two weeks after his initial trial, Crane would step down from defending Ms. Clark. He would leave her on her own, and he would leave the city to escape the bad publicity. He would return again to defend Ms. Clark when she accused Becker of a false arrest. And one of the desk sergeants that worked 
for the 30th would warn Crane, if you monkey with this case, you're sure to come out with mud all over you. Unfortunately, Crane did not listen to this warning. Most of the trial was focused on tearing Crane to shreds. Becker and his attorney would paint Crane as immoral, as a pimp, and as an opium addict. During this time, Becker encouraged the police to raid his apartment and they found opiates and Crane would deny throughout the case that these opiates did not belong to him. Was it planted? We don't know. Was it hid? We don't know. But the papers would seize upon this and they would seize upon Crane's association with Clark. There were headlines which read from Boston to Chicago, Crane's association with women in Scarlet is not necessarily a red badge of courage. During this time, Crane's reputation was completely ruined. Even police commissioner Teddy Roosevelt, who had previously been a fan of Crane, even hosted Crane for dinner earlier that summer, permanently turned his back on this once beloved author and he once considered a friend. Five days after Dora Clark's arrest, Becker and his partner, Officer Carey, stopped a robbery at a tobacco store. He clubbed one man, fired at the other two, and killed one of the suspects instantly. The suspect was falsely identified as a gangster, but was turned out to be just an innocent bystander, a 19-year-old plumber's assistant named John Fay. Becker would just get suspended for a month, and Tim Sullivan, Big Tim, his patron, ensured that he stayed on the force. And that same year, <laughs> Becker would arrest another alleged prostitute, but this woman turned out to be the wife of a prominent New Jersey textile manufacturer and was most definitely not a streetwalker. When confronted about this, Becker allegedly replied with, I don't care who she is. I know a whore when I see one. And once again, Tim Sullivan would step in and Becker was allowed to keep his job. I want to also mention that Becker had... A publicist. This guy needed a publicist because of all the fuckery that he was doing. I I have to say that is such a classic line. I know a whore when I see one. And he didn't even get reprimanded for this. The other thing that I read about the Dora Clark incident is that when she accuses him falsely arresting her, he finds her on the street and he beats her. With witnesses, like in the middle of the street, nothing happens. The fallout is that he ruins Stephen Crane's career, ultimately. And shortly after that, a teenager charges Becker with assault for just beating him bloody in a theater lobby. Obviously, this man is really quick to anger, really quick to react, and he just doesn't think. He he hits first and then asks questions later. And so he was strong. He was imposing. He was stubborn. But he was very well represented. He was protected on all sides. He had political backing. He had support of his fellow officers. He even had a personal press agent dedicated to making him 
look less insane in the newspapers by 1904. And I'm going to attribute this entirely to Mr. Charles Plitt, his press agent. Becker wows the city with this heroic act as he rescues a man named James Butler, who had fallen off the Hudson Pier. Becker runs into the water, jumps in full, full uniform, pulls butler out of the water and it's this big thing he gets an award for it the top award for bravery in police force at the time two years later james butler would confess that becker had offered to pay him to jump and fake the whole thing just to make him look good but he's a hero so we're gonna run with that as a reward he gets transferred to the Tenderloin District. It's called that because it was supposedly that any corrupt cop could afford the better cut of meat, the Tenderloin, after working there. It was the tastiest, juiciest morsel of vice and graft. If you were a corrupt cop, if you wanted to make some money, this is where you wanted to be. And guess who he answers to? Captain Max Schmidtberger, the person that spoke to the Lexo committee that said, Yes, there's graft. We're going to deal with this. We're going to address it. He's the one collecting graft in the tenderloin. He was raking in bribes. He was taking protection money and Becker wanted in. The standard rate that Schmidtberger had, the average, was $300 a month. That's over $10,000. It's $10,300 plus US in today's money. That was the money every month that he would collect from saloons and like opium dens, school halls, anything that needs to exist under the protection of, of the police and have them look the other way. At one point, Becker gets sent to collect protection money and he decides to test the waters when he goes to Dollar John's saloon, a known enough gambler at the time, and Becker tacks on an extra 20 bucks to the 300. So he says, it's going to be 300, but from now on, since I'm going to be the collector now, now you pay me directly 20 bucks. And Dollar John did, without question. And seeing how easy that was going to be, Becker kept taking money from like the next guy and the next guy. And he made 150 bucks that day just for himself, in addition to the 300 per place. The following morning, and he thought he was being so slick, right? The following morning, Schmidtberger calls him into the office. He demands the $150. So he knows exactly how much Becker has collected on top of what he was collecting for Schmidtberger. He counts out 15 bucks and tosses it on the table and says, this is going to be your cut. You're going to get 10%. And he says to him, some joints can stand to pay more than they are. And if you get it, that's so much better for you. But remember, I will always know how much they paid. You can tell that Schmidtberger was not happy with Becker going back to the Lexo committee hearings. And now Becker's answering to him. And he becomes Schmidtberger's bagman. He lays the foundation of many relationships with gamblers and saloon owners in the Tenderloin and kind of establishes himself as this person that they now answer to. By June of 1906, so he's been under Schmidtberger for a couple of years, Becker gets handpicked by Police Commissioner Bingham. And this is done passing over Schmidtberger without his knowledge or approval. The Police Commissioner picks Becker to be part of a special 15-man raid team to go after like the most notorious gambling dens at the time. He and the others are loaded into this red furniture van. And it's actually called the, the Red Van Raids. Under the guise of being movers, they were able to raid four places in a really quick succession. So 61 West 115th Street, then 128 West 36th, AK Hunters, that undercover cops had like gambled at these places. So they knew for a fact that these were gambling dens that needed to be shut down. At this, at Hunters, a number of Broadway actors were caught gambling and they were all let go because the police just wanted 
the owners of the place. Then there was the hot box at 69 West 38, uh, where they arrested a bunch of bookies for selling handbooks and tip sheets. So basically, like, this is who you want to be betting on because the races were fixed anyway. And then lastly, there was a raid at 137 West 41st. Um, so this is all like really tight quarters. And at this place, they actually had to chop out the basement windows to get in. And this was right next door to Honest John Kelly's saloon. So another guy, kind of a big name, not really a big deal for us. But the only, the main thing to keep in mind is that this was such a display of power. We're not even going to bother raiding your place. We're going to raid the place next door. Your place isn't even on our radar, but keep it in mind that we can do this. As this develops, it gets this moniker of the system. By 1909, there's this very general understanding that the system exists, the system of graft and collection and protection money, the police are in on it, the vice is in on it. It's just this thing, this big thing that exists and controls everything. By 1909, there's kind of an effort to clean this up. As we talked in a previous episode, this is around the time that Rosenthal blows the whistle the first time. And he starts trying to do what he did with Becker in 1912, that he starts blowing the whistle. He says, the system exists. I want attention to this. And really, it's because he kept getting raided and he wanted these corrupt cops off his back so he could run his his own saloons and gambling dens. But this brings to light that there's this thing that needs to get dealt with. At the time, he actually manages to get a detective off the force, ruins his reputation and, and brings his name forward. And it, his name is Detective Reardon. He ends up becoming a private investigator that actually gets involved with the Becker case and the, the Rosenthal murder. I really do think that he was the sacrificial lamb to get attention off of the bigger fish. Yeah, the, the probe started into police corruption under William Travers Jerome, who was also on the Luxo committee. So he's no stranger to dealing with cleaning up rackets and corruption. Clearly, they didn't do a great job the first time. In order to really clean up the force, though, Fire Commissioner Rhinelander Waldo is transferred to the police, to the position of police commissioner, which is a high-ranking civilian role. Waldo was kind of, historically, he's depicted as this like naive socialite. His mother was generational wealth. He got to go to boarding school. He had high education, worked really quickly up the ranks in the military. Really, he just paid for it. And then when he comes back to New York, he was a decorated veteran and obviously the best pick for a police commissioner. But the reality is he was a Tammany pawn. He really seems this like naive trusting person that when he's told, oh, yeah, yeah no, the, we're dealing with the graft, like we're good. He believes it. August 13th, 1911, specifically, there is a newspaper article that officially announces that Becker is a leader of this brand new, unique, strong arm squad that Waldo has picked himself. He's put the squad together. He's given Becker the green light to do whatever needs to happen to clean up the tenderloin. We can definitely speculate that Tim Sullivan and Tammany Hall had a hand in making sure that it was Becker, that that was the best candidate for the job. So he had total freedom to pick a squad. Reading their bios, one was really good at wearing different plain clothes so that he would like blend in. Uh, he was like a master of disguise. And another one had been a boxer previously. Like there's just this like ragtag group of corrupt cops <laughs> that are now working together to clean up corruption. It ends up being that there's actually three squads and they all answer to Becker raiding one place and collecting from the other and not really overlapping. They had it down to a science. Well, and, and all the while they're making a show to Commissioner Waldo that, no, 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 we're dealing with things. Things are going great. 
And so he was satisfied that the squads were handling the vice issue, none the wiser that they were also lining their pockets at the same time. Becker, since he was top brass in this, he starts to not really trust his fellow officers to collect for him. He starts hiring the criminal element. So one of the people that he hires is Baldy Jack Rose. He'll come up significantly later during this trial. He's now Becker's collector. And so this gambler is going to other gamblers to collect money for a plot. He also enlists muscle, like Jack Zellig, who was a very violent, very prominent gangster. And so he, Becker, would go to him when saloon owners wouldn't pay up, when, you know, a little bit of force needed to happen that he couldn't apply himself. One of these more stubborn holdouts was Rosenthal. We don't know just how well they knew each other, but let's stick with the theory that Rosenthal and Becker met in 1912. They didn't know about each other until then. I do not believe that for a second, but let's just run with it. Rosenthal had this special position as Tim Sullivan's protege. He felt beyond safe in his position that no matter what he did, no matter who he upset, Tim Sullivan would always take care of it. It also meant that Rosenthal, whenever he needed money, he could go to Tim Sullivan and borrow money. So when he finally wanted to open up a place in 1912 in the Tenderloin, Tim Sullivan says no. And this is the first time that he's ever said no to him. They've known each other at this point for like 20 years. Tim Sullivan refuses to lend him money. We'll touch on it more in another episode. But basically, Rosenthal was cut off from the Sullivan fortune. And so the next person that he goes to is Becker. Why would you go to somebody to borrow money that you've only met a couple of months prior? Allegedly, Becker lends him $1,500 to start up this new venture. But there's like the, all of these weird convoluted things to it that Rosenthal has to show up to this lawyer's office on a particular day. The lawyer calls somebody and we assume it's Becker. Rosenthal assumed it was Becker. And he had to describe how Rosenthal was dressed. Oh, OK. It's a man in a, in a brown suit with brown shoes and a hat. Yes, that is the correct person. You can get him to sign the paperwork. The paperwork was under a fake name. Becker's name does not appear anywhere associated to this whole situation. And the lawyer was one of Jack Rose's people. So Becker was clean in this case. In exchange, Rosenthal was forced to mortgage his furniture as collateral for the 1500 And Becker was given a 20% cut of the profits. So now Becker's a 20% owner of this new venture in the Tenderloin. Rosenthal isn't happy about it, but whatever place is opening, things are going well. And then Mr. Charles Plitt, Becker's press agent, goes and does a thing. He is apparently at a raid that Becker is running. For some reason, the press agent has a gun and kills a man during one of these raids. So he's arrested. Becker goes around to all of his good old chums and friends who he can shake down for money to pull together this fund to pay his press agent's bail. He decides that Rosenthal needs to pay $500. And at this point, Rosenthal is still not really doing that great in his place. He's just had to mortgage all of his furniture to get a loan out of Becker. And Becker's taking a 20% cut. And now he wants $500 on top of that. He refuses to pay. As retribution for that, less than a month after, Becker raids it. Apparently, this has been on Waldo's radar for a while, that he was very upset that Rosenthal just kept reopening and kept running his place. So Becker goes to raid it. The story goes is that Becker kept asking Rosenthal to fake this raid. Rosenthal would refuse. And he kept pushing and kept pushing until 
somebody calls Rosenthal and tells him to meet Becker at like a restaurant across town. He shows up to the place. Obviously, there's nobody there. He immediately realizes that, oh, there's something going on, rushes back to his place. And sure enough, the cops are raiding. They're chopping up the doors. They're chopping up the stuss tables and the roulette and everything. There's this line that, that he starts screaming. He goes ballistic. One of the cops actually says, no, 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 it's okay. Charlie's got you. Charlie's going to take care of it. Don't even worry about it. That just riles him up even more. They arrest Rosenthal's nephew. There's, it's, it's a whole thing. After, to add insult to injury, Becker installs a police officer to like live in Rosenthal's attic to make sure that they don't reopen right away. Because that, that would be a thing. Like They get raided on a Sunday by Monday morning. They're, they're open again. So he couldn't open for months because this cop was living right there. But Becker says, you know, as a gesture of goodwill, I'm going to forgive that $1,500. Don't even worry about it. Forget about the mortgage. Paperwork has, has disappeared. I'm sorry. That 1500 bucks should cover and all of the And this damages. is what gets Rosenthal riled up. So now Rosenthal is going to anyone and everyone that will listen to him. He wants to blow the whistle on the system again. And he wants to reveal the rampant police corruption. And he names Becker personally and claims that he only wants to out Becker and nobody else. Arnold Rothstein steps in and tries to talk Rosenthal out of this. Meanwhile, Becker is working on collecting evidence against Rosenthal, and he is preparing to sue Rosenthal for defamation and libel. He gets sworn statements from anyone that Rosenthal has turned himself against and tries to get a statement from Rosenthal's first wife, Dora Gilbert. Rosenthal then runs his mouth to D.A. Uh, Whitman, and he's getting ready to go before the grand jury, and Becker is preparing his own case. Unfortunately, Rosenthal does not live to speak his piece. In our previous episode, Goodbye Herman, we find out that Becker is accused of orchestrating the murder. So where was Becker on this fateful day? Well, allegedly he had been spending the day with his wife. He took her on a picnic away from all of the clamor and the accusations that had been against him. And then later on that night, he attended a boxing match at Madison Square Gardens and he caught up with his good old buddy, Jack Sullivan. This is the same Jack Sullivan who was close friends with Rosenthal. Rosenthal was his best man at Sullivan's wedding. Sullivan would later identify Rosenthal's body outside the Metropole later that night. That was the famous line with the uh, hello, yes, Herman, goodbye, we Herman, right? I think that it may have been Jack Becker and Jack Sullivan and a reporter friend all took the same car from Madison Square Gardens to get home. And initially they had offered to drive the reporter all the way home to New Jersey. And that would have taken Becker out of Manhattan during the time frame of the murder and given him a good alibi However, they dropped the reporter 
at the train and they continued on and the next stop that they took was at the world building where becker allegedly wanted to return newspaper clippings that had been uh pertaining to rosenthal's accusation and after this he dropped jack off at the george m cohan theater which was very conveniently across the street from the metropole and then becker stated that he headed home in the previous episode about half an hour later a gray packard would pull up in front of the hotel metropole several shady figures would get out in their felt hats and they would open fire on herman rosenthal and they would kill him instantly we're going to get into what Becker was exactly accused of later and just the whole mess of the trial and the retrial and the appeals. But he had been there. He had literally driven past the Metropole, whether that was on purpose or coincidence or just really unfortunate timing. We will never know, but it certainly didn't help. It's like the, the killer coming to the scene of the crime to check out what he did, right? What we do know is Becker gets a call later that night after the the deed is done. And the call was something along the lines of, so did you hear? He's dead. And Becker was shocked. Exactly. Why would he be surprised? We have theories on that. Everybody says he did. He had this personal vendetta against Rosenthal. He seems to be a very good friend and was considered extremely amiable to the ones that he was loyal to and considered a friend to but then on the other side he has this extremely violent nature as much as rosenthal held grudges i feel like becker was also one to hold a grudge i keep coming back to him and helen i cannot believe that he would be doing this Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde thing so well. He would, rather than going out with the boys, he'd want to come home. Is this how he's getting his anger out? Beating up on gangsters during the day so that he can come home and be this perfect angel of a husband? My big question is, like, I don't get it. what the heck happened with Letitia? Why, after six years of marriage, would she run off with his brother and go so far west and would not return also get this math from what i remember paul john who was the brother paul john becker was born in 1858 and letitia was born in 1877 that's a big age gap they had howard in 1899 and then they divorced by 1904 that's about when He's really starting to, like, they they would have met after the, the whole Stephen Crane thing. Is she seeing yeah. how cruel he is? Like, is she hearing all these stories? She would have been around for, for that saving James Butler thing. Did the marriage fail because she could see right through the farce that she could see right through him? She could see that he's not a good person. Or was there something or shady going I'm on on the side with the I'm also wondering if we take the theory that Marianne Mahoney is his first true love, is Letitia then the rebound? The one that he needs to be yeah. with so that he can meet his second true love, Helen? 
during the trial when they do bring up Marianne and accuse Becker of, oh, maybe he had a hand in hurrying up the death. He gets so upset that that's even a thought in the line of questioning. It's, it's one of the few times he is visibly shaken on the stand that he's so surprised by this kind of weaselly suggestion that like you do get the sense that he really cared for her. He met her when he was first getting into the city. Yeah. He's starting on the police force. Maybe there was a genuine wish to create this American dream. He's no longer on the farm. He's really pursuing his dreams. He's He actually ends up bringing his brother Jackson, who's a little bit older. He brings him into the police force. So the two of them work for the police. I don't know much about Jackson's background and in terms of his associations with the system. But there seems to, at least at the start, have been this genuine desire to create a good life for himself and a better life. And then all those shenanigans start happening. Like, who hurt you, Charlie, to be going after these women of the night? Because it's just after Marianne dies and just before yeah. he marries and let's Letitia, talk about right? Becker's stature. He's 6'2 in flat shoes. He is a big man. He's intimidating. And we'll post pictures on the Instagram account. Like, he is a beefy man. He is described as that, too, that he is recognizably large and has these fists the size of somebody's head that he's just <laughs> bare paws that he can swipe at you and knock you over with a single swipe. He was a, he was a scary guy paired with this anger streak. Imagine him walking in. We have a picture of Rosenthal, for example. A guy like that, like shrimpy little guy, five foot nothing, and then this six foot two. They called him Adonis. Charlie, right? He's going to walk in. He's probably, his head's probably brushing the, the ceiling of your basement gambling space. Yeah, you're going to pay 20 bucks to get him out of there because he's taking up the whole room and you can't fit it's anybody no else in it. That gangsters are paying up for him. <laughs> this case ends up pretty recognizable until fairly recently right like now it's kind of obscure but we've heard stories that this was used as the as an example of how evidence could be fabricated to turn a trial in a particular direction this was used to train legal professionals and then all of a sudden we don't know about it i am very curious was becker just trying to arrest people so that he could take a cut of the bail money. I mean, that's what everybody else was doing. And, <laughs> and just like, she looks like a whore. <laughs> so like on paper, he does not look like a good person. He has money hidden. He's a lucky son of a bitch. As, as much as Rosenthal thought himself untouchable like that was Becker like where does he get this confidence from other than you know obviously knowing what hand feeds him and then he goes home and grades right. homework with his wife like this was his safe place that she was his like once yeah we'll talk about we, we should do an episode on we Helen we, we're, we have to we must yeah, she, she deserves a little bit more attention. Yeah, as far as, like, good humans in this whole story, and in general, as far as good humans existing, 
She's definitely she might, up there. She may be one of the few, genuinely. Yeah. Yeah. Just a good person. Got her, got herself dragged into this this whole thing. So with that, I guess we'll call it on this episode. I'm really excited about some very new research that I've been yeah. able to dig up. And part of that is thanks to our listeners. Actually, we have a wonderful listener that reached out and uh, said, first of all, where are more episodes? So here <laughs> you go. Here. Hopefully in the next month. We'll figure it out. I do I do want to do an episode by October because like we've, we've, we're still we trying should, to kind of stick with. Spooky season too. Moida. Spooky season. Murder and ghosts. and ghosts. Maybe maybe our next episode will be about ghosts. We don't know. That'll be the Kings of New York special. The Halloween special. The Halloween special. <laughs> ghosts. <laughs> we can talk about our graveyard oh experiences. So thank you for listening because it's awesome to find out that we have listeners. Thank you for supporting. Thank you for th- throwing the weirdest curveballs our way i think i was definitely swearing about 10 minutes after we were supposed to get on the call tonight to record because i had found something really really cool that's going to be an episode in of itself so surprise annie surprise more stuff really mm-hmm, mm-hmm. this is like this is a completely new person yeah okay this is a completely i'm, I'm new excited person. to find out ties so many things together where i'm like there are so many characters in play within this story i mean we're gonna have to be doing episodes for the next 40 years and yeah not even cover anyway so this story keeps just getting bigger and bulkier we have people that are multiple generations into the story who have taken it upon themselves to clear his name so for somebody that's not a good person somebody that's this corrupt grafting pop why would you go out of your way and even for him well and even us i'm fully committed to the fact that he is i believe he's innocent of this sure he did a lot of bad stuff but with (laughs) that we're gonna call it on this episode as always follow us on on the socials things of new york podcast on instagram we're going to be posting pictures um (laughs) and thirst traps of becker we're going to post some show notes on on our website so kings of new york podcast.com that's going to take you to the rss feed sign up follow us tag us whatever and if Alyssa has time maybe a movie night Yes. So this is something Annie and I have been talking about. We have a very extensive collection of very old films. So there was a series of films in the 30s that have a recurring gangland corrupt cop theme that is far too on the nose to be a coincidence. And I want to start watching these movies. So whether we do like once a month or once every couple months, I would love to do that so we're going to post about that on our socials as well as to when we're going to schedule a movie night 
We'll have to see what movie we're going to go and with first. We will, we will likely stream over idea. Discord. Yeah. We will do a Discord thing. So join yeah. our Discord channel. Podcast. Things of New York. And please, please, if you have any comments, if you have any, like, weird tangential information project you're working on yourself or if you have any questions if if we've mentioned anybody or anything that kind of like sparks something in your mind maybe something that you've come across in your weird 3 a.m rabbit holes on ancestry give us a shout we'd we would love, love to talk to about it yes yeah if you are or know anyone that is related to anybody in the story please do reach out we have questions. We'd love to chat, especially if you do know about. And if you have any relationship to Becker, you may think that he was the black sheep of the family, that he did it, that he's not somebody that you talk about. I Part of why we're doing this is so that you can be okay with this person being part of your heritage. Because as much as he did, I really don't think that he was... A monster.